senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery 
shall never again endanger us. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Welcome to Nerosville, episode 36, Tom's Generation. Tom Brokaw named it, I can't improve on it, so the greatest generation it is. The Japanese military leaders who planned the attack on Pearl Harbor, as well as Hitler and his generals, gravely misjudged the United States. Japan and Germany were strong martial cultures with military values and brave fighters who would follow any orders from their commanders. Americans, on the other hand, were soft. Democracy had allowed them to grow faint-hearted and weak. That's what they thought anyway. What Japan and Germany found was that they had picked fights, and it was Japan who attacked Pearl Harbor and Hitler, who declared war on the U.S. against the wrong country. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech in our opening, redacted due to time limitations, is often cited as an example of the resolve of mid-20th century America. Does the name Omaha Beach ring a bell with you? The Allies first fought the Germans in North Africa and then in Italy. But Stalin, who had been bearing the brunt of the German war machine in Russia, had been pushing for the Allies to start a second front in Europe, much closer than Italy, in order to draw German troops from Russia. Finally, on June 6, 1944, the Allied troops, including America, attacked the German defenses on the Normandy coast. Their codename for this action was Operation Overlord. We know it as D-Day. The scope of D-Day was vast. 850,000 men, almost 150,000 vehicles, and 570,000 tons of supplies were uploaded to the beaches of Normandy to begin the Allies' push toward Germany. There were five beaches that the Allied soldiers landed on. They were codenamed Utah, 
Gold, Juno, Sword, and Omaha. The reason that you may remember Omaha is that before the landings of D-Day, American bombers had bombed the German gun batteries overlooking the bluffs that had protected these beaches. Much of the German resistance was therefore destroyed on most of these beaches. Much of the fighting was still heavy, but the Germans' ability to defend these beaches was gravely degraded. Except on Omaha Beach. Allied bombers had missed their targets there. American soldiers had to land on the beach in full sight of well-defended German machine gunners. Casualty rates for the brave Americans that landed on Omaha Beach were horrific. Those that did had to survive the run up the beach to the bluffs below the battery where the Germans were shooting the landing Americans. Several soldiers who did survive the beach crossing found shelter directly below the bluff where the German battery was located as the Germans couldn't see the Americans directly below them. Those who tried to get around the sides of the battery were cut down by German machine guns. So there was a stalemate for the latter part of the morning and early afternoon. The Americans couldn't break out of their shelter below the battery, and the Germans couldn't shoot them there. Then, in the early afternoon, the admirals in the Allied battleships off the coast made a momentous decision. They shelled the battery from the guns of the battleship. This was a momentous decision, because one shell, off by just a degree or so, could land right in the middle of the soldiers, kill all or most of the soldiers, and lose the battle. But their aim was true. The battery and the machine gun nests were largely neutralized, and Americans and their allies established beachheads on all five beaches. The bravery exhibited by the soldiers of D-Day was amazing. I remember reading the story of one soldier on D-Day. It was on the bluff overlooking one of the beaches. There were a series of cabins that German soldiers were holed up in that needed to be cleared. There was a U.S. Army ranger who, cabin by cabin, kicked in the back door, threw a grenade in, then cleared the cabin with his machine gun until he had cleared them all. I can't remember his name. It was years ago I read it. If anyone knows this story, please correct any of my errors and post his name. He definitely deserves the credit. Then there's the story of the Battling Bastards of Bastogne. This was during the Battle of the Bulge. America had been making great headway in their battle towards Germany. So Hitler ordered that Germany pull many of its troops off the Eastern Front in Russia as Stalin had hoped, and send them to the Western Front in order to hit the advancing Americans with everything they could. The result was a massive pushback of American and Allied forces, resulting in a bulge in Allied lines, giving this battle its name. But though the Germans pushed the Allies back, they could not break through their lines. Crucial to a breakthrough would be for the Germans to break through the Allied lines and reach the harbor at Antwerp before the Americans did. To get to the harbor, the Germans needed to get through the town of Bastogne, where the storied 101st Airborne Division was waiting for them. The 101st was outnumbered 5 to 1. Weather wasn't allowing them to be resupplied. They were outnumbered and very low on ammunition and supplies. 
the German commander sent them a surrender demand that said, There is only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is the honorable surrender of the encircled town. In order to think it over, a term of two hours will be granted beginning with the presentation of this note. If this proposal should be rejected, one German artillery corps and six heavy AA battalions are ready to annihilate the USA troops in and near Bastogne. The order for firing will be given immediately after this two hours term. The American commander sent back a one-word reply. Nuts. The resulting siege lasted from December 20 to the 27th. The vastly outnumbered 101st, low on supplies and without proper winter gear, fought with everything they had. The weather eventually cleared enough for them to be resupplied, and they held Bastogne. This and many other brave stands by other U.S. forces allowed the Army the time it needed to get necessary supplies and reinforcements into the bulge. Eventually, Allied troops were reinforced all along the front, and the German forces were defeated. Hitler had thrown everything he had into this engagement. Once these German troops were defeated, there was no way Hitler could stop either the U.S. or the Russian forces. The war was essentially over for Germany at that point. These are just a couple stories of the heroism in World War II. A couple minutes here on my podcast can't begin to do justice to the bravery and heroism that American GIs displayed during the war. Remember that most of these GIs were young Americans just out of school and weren't career military. They would go back home, go to school on the new GI Bill, get married, find jobs, and start businesses. When they did, they knew how to endure hardships and to work hard through adversity. My dad was stationed on a troop transport in the Korean War. He used to say that we took over boys and we brought back men. So what did a soldier gain from his gig in the Army? Perhaps a soldier may have been a tank commander. Not much demand for that back home. If he came back and started applying for jobs, J.C. Penney may have told him, Thank you for your service, but I'm afraid we don't have need for tank commanders right now. So what skills did the soldier have that would help him in the job market? Certainly, they had problem-solving skills and a good work ethic. But more than anything, they had a tenacity, a determination to keep it something and never give up. Were these useful skills? Remember back when we were talking about the phenomenon of emergence? Remember how it works. You have thousands of small, independent, individual phenomena acting on their own but which are all connected in a larger network. When these small phenomena all begin to act in the same or a similar way, the cumulative effect on the network is qualitatively different from the individual effect of any one of these phenomena. First a little background. Then we'll look at how this emergence manifested in post-World War II America. So what was the cumulative effect of the war ending and all these soldiers coming home? And it wasn't just the soldiers coming home. There were 60,000 nurses and thousands and thousands of support personnel as well. And then there was also the rest of the nation that had remained home. 
the war affected everyone. I recently had the chance to see my mom's World War II ration books. My mom kept very few effects from her early years. She would have probably been in her first year of college at the time. She told me the story of working for a paracanner in the Columbia River Gorge. She worked her full eight-hour shift, stacking heavy boxes of Paris. When it was over, her boss asked if she could stay and work the night shift as well, as they were falling behind on their quotas. It was heavy physical work, but she agreed. Her muscles ached, and she was totally exhausted by the end of the night. But she felt good because she felt that she was doing her part to support the war effort. This is a small story, but almost everyone during that time had similar stories. There was just a zeitgeist in the nation at the time that you did whatever you could to support the war effort. Women in most pre-industrial economies work in the home. A Pakistani friend of mine in college described it this way. If you want chicken for dinner tonight, you go to the store and buy a chicken. It's all cut up and packaged for you. In Pakistan, if we want a chicken, someone must catch the chicken, kill it, pluck it, butcher it, and then we have chicken. In America, you have a maid in the supermarket. As America industrialized, more and more conveniences made life easier, yet traditional values and gender roles continued to lead most women to remain at home. It was during World War II that these roles changed. World War II changed the gender roles not just because of the substantial number of men in the military serving overseas or in support positions at home, but also because of a huge increase in the country's manufacturing requirements. Ships, fighter planes, bombers, jeeps, and armaments of every kind were now necessary for the war effort. This required women to enter the workforce in unprecedented numbers. As these women entered the U.S. workforce in massive numbers, they proved themselves to be as diligent and as hardworking as their male counterparts. After the war was over, some of these female workers got married, started families, and stayed home. But the days of their being essentially only one role for American women were over. World War II opened the economy to women for the first time. Large numbers of women appreciated their newfound independence and continued to work. I know for my mother, this allowed her a freedom and independence that she loved. The war then deeply affected the lives of most Americans in one way or another. Young men came back from the war convinced that they would never stop and never give up. Millions of women were now energized by our victory in the war and convinced that they, too, could achieve great things if they wanted to. There was also a feeling that we had overcome the forces of darkness. Overall, Americans didn't torture their prisoners of war in World War II and treated them humanely in accordance with the Geneva Convention. The Germans, meanwhile, did use torture. Not so much with Americans, whom they viewed as similar to themselves, but with regard to Slavic and other peoples they viewed as genetically inferior. Then there were the death camps. When the full horror of the Holocaust became known, the true barbarity of the Germans came out. Americans felt we were liberating Europe from a great evil. As for the Japanese, the extent of their atrocities came out following the war. These included what became known as the Rape of Nanking 
as well as the brothels of comfort women that they operated throughout the war. Americans felt that they were of higher moral fiber than the Germans and the Japanese. Let's look, for example, at the episode now known as the Nanjing Massacre. In 1937, the Japanese were on the move in western China during the Sino-Japanese War that preceded World War II. They had just conquered Shanghai and moved on to the capital of nationalist China, Nanjing, known to the West at the time as Nanking. When it became obvious that the Chinese nationalists wouldn't be able to hold it against the oncoming Japanese army, the Chinese general Chiang Kai-shek abandoned the city, leaving its defense to local, poorly trained auxiliary troops. The Japanese entered Nanjing, and the commanding general, Machui Inoue, allowed his troops to have six days of unrestricted and undisciplined reign in the city. There are no official statistics of the numbers killed and wounded, but it's estimated that 200 to 300,000 citizens and hapless auxiliary troops were massacred in these six days, and the numbers of Chinese women sexually assaulted were staggering. And yes, the Nanjing massacre was in fact that horrific and barbaric. We look back on it today as a completely appalling, unjustified, and inhuman attack on defenseless civilians. What kind of monsters would engage in such barbarity? Sadly, the Japanese weren't alone. There are many, many existing counts from ancient sources of entire cities being massacred after falling to an attacking army's siege. And I suspect far more instances of such massacres that haven't survived in the historical record. So what was the difference between the Japanese and the American GIs who didn't engage in such atrocities? Certainly at least not on such a mass scale. Japan didn't begin its industrialization until about 1870. It takes some time for a country to fully industrialize. It doesn't get there in one generation. This means that the generation of Japanese fighting World War II was the first generation of Japanese that lived in a fully industrialized Japan, 70 years from the beginning of their country's industrialization. Before that, the Japanese had lived in a Japan whose values were not greatly different than the samurai values of the Tokugawa shoguns who had unified Japan in the 8th century. Although the Nanjing massacre is seen as barbaric today, traditionally, sacking a city that an invading army had captured wasn't seen that way. It was just one of the spoils of war. It was that way under the Tokugawa shogunates. It was that way in medieval Europe. Japan was not yet a society that had time to grow out of its medieval samurai mindset. It's what happens when a country industrializes too fast and hasn't had time to develop modern values. So, Japan was an industrialized country that hadn't fully moved past its medieval mindset. For General Inoue, sacking a city in the old fashion was just what you did. For untold centuries, it's what all armies did. Remember the Crusaders and the sack of Jerusalem? Yeah, they killed everyone there. And Alexander in the sack of Tyre? 6,000 killed, another 2,000 crucified, 30,000 sold into slavery. 
These are just two examples. Sacking a city was just accepted practice. If you're going to ask a soldier to put up with the privations of campaigning, the hardships and dangers of battle, what are you going to give him in return? Traditionally, for humankind, the answer has always been, at least he gets a few days to enjoy himself sacking a city. The West, on the other hand, had spent, depending on how you count it, 250 years or so from the Renaissance through the Second Axis, changing their medieval mindset that had allowed, among other things, the sacking of outgroup cities when they were captured. So by the time American GIs conquered Nuremberg in World War II, sacking the city was out of the question. The outer wheel of history had moved on, and although these post-Second Axis American GIs would never have put it this way, they had incorporated Kant's categorical imperative into their moral fiber, and were in fact operating on a different moral plane than the Japanese soldiers who sacked Nanjing. I know, we firebombed Dresden, Tokyo, and several other cities, not to mention the fact that we deployed the only nukes ever used in the history of modern warfare. As one U.S. general put it, if we lose the war, we'll be tried as war criminals. And with good justification, I'm definitely not going to waste any ink justifying Americans' bombing decisions during the war. I don't think some of them can be defended, and it's well past time we stood up and admitted to these. But there were a couple of differences I'd point out here. First, sacking a city is something you do after you've captured the city. There's no tactical advantage gained by sacking a city you've already captured. It's just a perk given to the soldiers who enjoy doing it. The bombing decisions were made with at least the hope of gaining a tactical advantage. Second, the Nanjing massacre was carried out by the mass of soldiers in the army. The horrific bombing decisions made by the Allies were made by a few Allied generals. Fortunately for those generals, it was the U.S. that won the war and put the Germans and the Japanese on trial for their war crimes. So, I'd say that the average U.S. soldier did act far more humanely than his adversary, whether Japanese or German. Yet decisions were made at the highest levels of the U.S. command that showed we definitely had not reached a level of humaneness that humanity had been evolving toward ever since the days of Adam and Eve. Call this, for a lack of a better term, being fully human. The outer wheel of history keeps moving forward, but we measure its progress in inches, not in miles. Okay, now let's put all this together. American GIs came home from the war. They had trained hard to be soldiers had fought hard to defeat fascism, and had learned that dogged determination would ultimately win the war. They came home to their sweethearts, women who had learned that their hard work, sacrifice, and determined effort was integral to America's success. Their place could be in the home if that's where they wanted it, but this was no longer where they were relegated. If they wanted a career, the war had opened this up for them. They all felt as if they were on the right side of history. In Europe, we had liberated those who had survived the horrors of the Nazi concentration camp. In the Pacific, 
we had been able to return home those who the Japanese had forced to serve as comfort women, and the soldiers who did it could hold their heads up to a proud nation who knew that our soldiers, by and large, didn't engage in the degradations that the Nazi and Japanese troops had. These soldiers and support personnel came back home, married, and got to work. The result? First of all, a lot of babies. On average, following the war, these returning GIs and their sweethearts added 4.24 million new babies to the U.S. population each year from 1946 to 1964. At their height, this baby boomer generation would constitute 40% of the U.S. population. Part of the reason for this increase was that our soldiers were home once again and getting married in record numbers. But part also had to do with the fact that the post-World War II economy was booming and parents felt that they could afford children. The U.S. birth rate dropped to just over 18 live births per thousand population during the height of the Great Depression. In 1947, that figure would climb to a little shy of 27 births per thousand. Then there was the effect of all those servicemen coming home to rejoin an already thriving economy. First, there was the GI Bill. This sweeping legislation did a lot for our new veterans. But one huge thing it did was to provide college scholarships for these recently discharged GIs. And they took advantage of it in massive numbers. In 1947, almost half of new college admissions were vets. Returning vets also went to work. American industry, operating at full production during the war, had no interest in losing their newfound profitability after the long years of the Great Depression. So they quickly retooled and began producing consumer goods instead of tanks and guns. This provided jobs for the new vets to come home to. On a basic level, the economics of the post-World War II economic boom were relatively simple. Americans had been living with wartime rationing for over three years. They just couldn't buy a lot of basics. Gas, meat, milk, etc. Yet everyone was working. In 1944, unemployment fell to 1.2%, still a record low for the U.S. Americans couldn't even buy a lot of stuff that wasn't being rationed. Frigidaire had stopped building refrigerators and started building machine guns and parts for B-29 bombers. Ford completely shut down its civilian automobile production to produce war material. For example, it produced several hundred B-24 bombers a month on its mile-long production line. This was the case for virtually all major U.S. manufacturers. Following the war, Frigidaire, Ford, and all other manufacturers returned to building consumer goods. American workers, who had been working through the war, had also been strongly encouraged to save their money rather than to spend it on all the consumer goods that weren't being manufactured anyway. Specifically, they were asked to save their money in war bonds, which went to fund the American war effort. And save they did. In 1945, Americans were saving over 20% of their personal disposable income, as compared to 3% in the 1920s. 
Here's where the emergence of the post-war economy came together. We had men and women either to work hard and build comfortable lives for their families. Soon, many of the GIs that came back took advantage of the GI Bill and went to college and graduated, giving the U.S. the most educated workforce it had ever had. And all that money American workers had been saving? It was burning a hole in their pockets. Americans started buying Frigidaires, Fords, and all kinds of consumer goods and stocked their households with all the luxuries of middle-class appliances they could have never afforded before. The new families that were minted after World War II all needed somewhere to live. Suburban housing developments built up across the U.S. Great relocations led to massive growth in Sunbelt states. All of this created new jobs, new houses, new cars, TVs, vacations, etc. This brought America the magic of a middle-class economy. Here's how that works. Middle-class workers with money to spend want the comforts of life that make living in the middle class easier and more enjoyable. They spend their money on refrigerators, cars, washing machines, going out to dinner, and vacations, where the money they spend goes to employ people in decent jobs that employ more Americans, who, in turn, are also brought into the middle class. These new entrants into the middle class, in turn, spend the vast majority of the money they earn, creating even more good-paying jobs for more Americans, etc., in a great virtuous job-creating cycle. The result? In 1945, in a world that had largely been devastated by the war, the U.S., with 5% of the world's population, was responsible for 50% of the world's economic production. From 1945 to 1960, average disposal income in the U.S. more than tripled. By 1960, over 75% of American households owned at least one car. That's a stunning increase from pre-war levels. In 1940, the GNP, which was the economic indicator used before the GDP, which is used now, was $200 billion. By 1950, it had grown to $300 billion. And by 1960, to $500 billion. The U.S. was by far the wealthiest nation in the world. The economy grew at a rate of about 4% per year in the 1950s and 5% in the 60s. That's a stunning amount of growth. And this period of amazing growth lasted until 1973. Congress passed the Highway Act of 1956, which provided for the construction of 40,000 miles of interstate highways. This allowed for easy travel throughout the U.S. and easier transportation of products. It's hard to overstate the importance of the interstate highway system in the growth of the 1960s. It now takes roughly five days to get from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco on the interstate highway system. In 1919, then-Captain Dwight D. Eisenhower, as part of an Army convoy, famously took 62 days to make the 3,242-mile journey from D.C. to San Francisco, averaging 52 miles a day. Travel was just not efficient in the U.S. before freeways. As president in the 1950s, Eisenhower decided to make the interstate highway system his legacy. After its construction, manufacturers were much more capable 
of getting their goods to market, and Americans enjoyed a newfound freedom to travel. It also made the suburbs possible as faster freeway commutes allowed workers to live farther from their city jobs. I can't conclude this episode without mentioning the space race. Yeah, the Russians beat us into space. But it was the Cold War, and Americans had a much stronger economy than the Russians, not to mention the brainpower that had produced nuclear fusion. We put an American into space in 1961, and a man on the moon in 1969. The 50s and 60s were America's decades. The men and women who had stepped up and won World War II came home and put their energies into building a stronger economy and a stronger United States. They were victorious in war. They were victorious in peace. So Tom Brokaw was right, or at least close to right. I suppose you could argue whether the generation that fought the Revolutionary War and created our country, the generation that defeated Southern secessionists and emancipated the slaves, or the generation that won World War II was the greatest, but this was certainly at least one of America's greatest generations. They not only joined the Allies and won the most bloody war in the history of the world, but they created the American economy that we all enjoy today. I mentioned that it's the generations that go through wars, natural disasters, or great hardships that typically move on to do great things? This was true big time for the generation that lived through World War II. They showed us what a nation can accomplish with hard work and perseverance. Did I mention race? Oh yeah, there was the whole race thing. Racism was still very prevalent in this generation. Some, especially in the South, were still very bigoted. Some were not. Some were in between. It would be up to the greatest generation's children and grandchildren to fight the civil rights battle. By our standards now, this generation doesn't score well on this issue, though I suppose they might claim some credit for voting for the senators and representatives that voted for the civil rights and voting acts. But as I've mentioned before, you can't judge previous historical epochs by your standards. The question is, did they move the ball forward from where it had been in previous generations. If that's the standard, they get some credit. They all grew up in Jim Crow America, where racial bigotry was the order of the day. It was their parents who had revived the Ku Klux Klan and flocked to it in massive numbers in the 1920s. It was this generation that began to listen to the NAACP and question the bigotry of their parents. They read W.E.B. Du Bois, and made James Baldwin a best-selling author. I'm sure there are many, many African Americans alive today who would have a lot to say about living under the bigotry of this generation. So though they don't get a lot of credit for ending racism in this country, they at least stopped the ball rolling in an ever more bigoted direction and allowed it to be poised to move in the direction of civil rights. History isn't binary. This generation has to live with their racist legacy but they did make some incremental gains in this direction. So we'll leave this podcast off in 1972. America's economy was booming. Tom's greatest generation 
had done their job. Economic growth had averaged 5% through the 1960s. America had made huge gains in civil rights, and Neil Armstrong had walked on the moon, taking one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What could possibly go wrong? You guessed it. Your read this week is Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation. It's an easy, fun, and uplifting read. The Hagiography of a Generation. Enjoy. See you next week.